Hi, I'm Carmel, and I'm an alcoholic. And uh, it's by God's grace in this program and the 12 steps of this program. And you people, I have been sober since August the 20th, 1978. And that is a miracle. It really is. I know that I'm one of those miracles in the program. And I, was, I am one of those real alcoholics. I was sitting here thinking about, you know, the chapter of the alcoholic, the, the agnostic, and the personal adventures here and after. I was a real alcoholic, and I was very agnostic when I came into these rooms. Um, I, was, I am from Alabama. I was born and raised in Mobile, Alabama, and uh, I'm a fifth child of six. And I was raised in a very violent alcoholic home. I know a lot of y'all probably heard the same story. But as a child growing up in that, that made me who I was today. I can see some of my character flaws and stuff showed up in my uh, disease when I found out I was alcoholic. Uh, because of the, the violence that went on. And um, I couldn't wait to get out of that. I just kept dreaming and dreaming. One day I was going to get out of this mess. I was going to get out and get out and get out. And, um, and I can remember even in grade school, a lot of us can probably understand this, you know, I didn't ever fit. You know, I always wanted to belong. I always knew I was different because my dad, my home was surrounded by cops all the time. And cops, dad was shooting up the neighbor's garbage can. So, therefore, I was always unique and different over here on this side. I never knew that. I had the disease inside of me that was just kind of compounding everything in me. Um, but anyway, I did, uh, as a child growing up, I couldn't read. I had a very, um, I had another disease, a problem with me. I don't know how to explain that, but I couldn't read. And uh, back in my generation or my era, they just passed you on through to get rid of you. So I got to the ninth grade, and I, I got 16. I could get a car, and um, I got a job, and, um, and I got out of there. And my sister was living in San Antonio, Texas then, and uh, she invited me out to visit her, and um, I moved in. I found my first geograph. I didn't know it until I thought back on that, but that was my first running of my career of running, because you'll hear my story. I was a runner. And uh, so I lived with my sister there in San Antonio and um, met my first husband. Uh, this is 17, 18 years old in here in this era of my life, you know, uh, and I met my first husband. I met him on well, I got New Year's Eve, and I think I was engaged to another guy. I was trying to remember how this all came about, but he was sitting over there, and I was playing. With, I started playing with his legs on the table, all that kind of stuff, you know, messing around. And uh, so January the first, I met him. So we got married January the nineteenth. So that's how fast I made decisions in my life, looking for something that was going to fix me, help me feel better. I thought if I got this one man and a home, and had the kids and everything, that something was going to be fixed inside of me. This is, I hadn't even had the booze in me yet. It hadn't come. So because I was raised in an environment where it was more like uh, moonshine, white lightning, and um, we didn't have the 7-Elevens where I grew up. You know, we just didn't have it. We, the alcohol was not available. And had it been, I would have you know, been, probably been more happier and more joyous as a child or as a young teenager. But it wasn't available for where I grew up, because I grew up in the Piney Woods, cotton patches, out in, the, in lower Alabama, and that's just the way it was. We didn't have, we had to walk to the grocery store, and it was one of those little things on the corner. And um, so I didn't have the alcohol. Daddy would always, he couldn't bring it home. I was like, don't bring it home. But he would, he would always go off and drink. He never brought any in. So I never got to get invited in or get to taste alcohol till I got to Texas. And I married my first husband. And I think I was 18 years old by then. And I remember the beer came about. And um, someone gave me a beer. And I'll never forget, 
you know, it's like, oh, it did, you know, I held my nose and got it down. And, uh, but I liked the way it felt. I did, I've, I never had that, I don't know if you understand that feeling of, you're just relaxed. And uh, the world is okay, everything is fine. And it was just a perfect thing. So the second beer, I didn't have to hold my nose. And so I could get it down smoother. And you know what? I like the way, y'all hear the stories over and over again, I like the way it made me feel. I, that's what I was needing in grade school. If I had it in grade school, I probably could have made an elementary school and in junior high a lot better. Uh, but back, I said, I'm in the eras in the, I was born in the, what was it, 40s. So back then, you know, they didn't have it like they have it today. The t- kids can get into it faster. Um, but it took what it took for me to get my career going, and it went fast. You know, it says in the big book that women, when it hits us, it hit us fast. When I saw that, I said, oh, my God, it did. Because from 18 to 34, that's how far I got to drink. Because it took me down a road that you wouldn't believe. And I just still to this day don't know how I survived that road. But like I said, I got introduced to the alcohol at 18, 19 years old. And my dream, I thought, if I ever got the husband, the home, and there wouldn't be no guns going off and have this peaceful little home that I was going to be all right. You know, we get the car, go to the church, you know, have the little picket fence around the house and have the kids. And that was going to, that was going to be perfect. That was my head. I knew if I ever got that, that I would, I was going to be an okay person on this earth because I never felt like I belonged. I never felt like self-worth was so low on me because of the environment I was raised in. So therefore, I always stayed over on the other side of the street. I never would come over here. And um, so I thought if I ever got that, that I, I would be the perfect person on this earth. And uh, But little did I know that even though I, I strive to get that, uh, I was married a few years. I found out I couldn't have children. So therefore, I thought I was there again. I knew there was something about this God thing. I had I'd been zapped again. I couldn't, you know, he was punishing me because I couldn't have kids. And that was one of my dreams. So um, someone said, well, why don't you adopt one? You know, I thought, they're not going to give me one because they know all about me. You know how the paranoia kicks in. They're going to know all about me, so they're not going to let me have a kid. And uh, so we filled out the paperwork, and uh, I think about six months later, we got a little girl, Tracy. And, uh, and then that's when it really hit because they, I got a picture of me holding her when I got out. They gave me her, and I went home. I, what am I going to do with her? Um, I, they're the fright in my face, the fear, so scared. They gave me this kid, and I was so scared. I got a picture of that. I could just see it in my face. I didn't know what to do. It's kind of like now that I had, when I sobered up, I didn't know how to do anything sober. I, all of this was doing drunk, trying to get this kid Tried to have this home I thought I wanted, this little life that was going to keep me happy, joyous, and free. Uh, but little did I know my disease was, was creeping in, going on. When I got her, I could not handle it, so the drinking escalated. And then we, by then we got to move around a lot. I was married in San Antonio, by then we moved to Austin. And so I got to where I could move around fast now. And then by then, when Tracy was born, we got down to Mac Island, Texas, uh, got to live there. And then I was close to Mexico then. And I could go across the border, seven miles into Mexico. And you could go over there during the day, and they didn't look at you funny. And you could drink all you wanted. And I can remember dancing on the bars in Mexico and on the tables, doing the can-can. That was the fun stuff in my drink, and I'll be honest, I did have some fun. But, you know, I never remember taking a sober breath. I never, even when I wasn't drinking, the thought to drink, when I was going to get there, where I was going to go and get another one and all that. I never, 
ever not had a sober thought in my brain, and I can remember that now. Looking back on it, I didn't see a thing. But we got to Mac Island, Texas, and Tracy was about three years old then, and she was pretty big where I could take her to the bars and sit on that little table thing, and she'd sit there, and she wouldn't bug me, you know, so I could have my fun and have her toes. Being a good mother, making sure I was good. So, um, but anyway, I got over to Mexico a lot, and I did a lot of stuff over there, and I always got in a fight, and uh, in trouble. I mean, wherever I went, I was trouble. I was trouble. I was stir up trouble wherever I went with my drinking and my attitude. Because I had a lot of anger in me. I don't know if any of y'all understand that, but anger was my biggest thing when I came into these rooms. Um, and it was about, through, Tracy was three years old, and then uh, my husband, I was drinking pretty heavy, but then it, he said he wanted another kid if we could adopt another one. And I didn't want one because I got her up big enough now to where I could run. I could run the streets and have my fun. And um, I got signed the papers one night, and we got a little boy. And uh, his name is Jonas. And uh, the reason why I say he's, he is the one that got the worst of the worst of my drinking. And uh, to this day, you know, he still loves me, and that's, that's a miracle. But um, I can remember when he was a baby, I, would, I had to have my drink every day, then I was a drinker. And I can remember that he would go off to work, and I was stuck there at the house. I was a housewife drinker. And uh, I remember Jonas laying in the bed, and I would go put my hand on his back to see if his lungs were moving. Then I had a few more hours. I knew he was alive. I was okay. That's how I lived. You know, if his lungs were moving, if he was going up and down, then I was okay. He wasn't dying. He, he was okay. I, I, evidently, I had fed him. You know, I didn't know if I fed him, and I don't remember those times. And I don't remember potty training him. I don't remember anything of his young age. And, um, and to this day, he'll get out. He'll ask me sometimes later on, he's, Mom, what happened this time? Where was that? We were here. And I said, let's get the album out, because the dad took a lot of pictures. And uh, we'll figure out. You know, I get the album out. We get start, I can start placing things, you know, where we were and what was going on. But that's how I lived, you know, my life in the first years of my drinking and the first year, early years of my kids that I had adopted. I wanted this home. I I wanted the kids. I wanted the car. I tried the station wagon. I tried the PTA. I tried all that stuff that I really wanted so bad. But my disease was taking away everything in my heart that I ever wanted. It would not allow me to have move forward. By the time I thought I could move forward, it would take me back. And um, so about um, we moved from Mac Island to Corpus Christi, Texas, and. Um, that's where I said I did a lot of Texas. I did it. I drank up. I ran out of people in Mac Allen, Texas, because Mary Lou, my friend, I had to make a lot of men's back in alcohol in Texas and down in Mac Allen, because I did a lot of damage there at a Baptist church and everything. But that's another. That's my men's stuff. But Mary Lou, she would take help me with Jonas. She'd take care of him. She said, "Now, she said, don't ever call me again. If you got the flu, I'm not going to buy that anymore." Because I always had the flu, so she'd have to come over and help me. And uh, she said, don't, don't call and tell me that anymore. I'm not buying it. So she kind of knew. I knew the gig was up, so therefore we had to get out. Because my husband worked with a company that we could move, move around. So I knew it was over with Mac Allen. I already used up my friends, already used up the church, used up everybody. So it's time to hook it out of there. So we moved on into Corpus Christi. And this is all my drinking. I mean, it's just going on and on. I don't like drinking. I don't like talking a lot about my drinking career. But this is about what happened to me to get me into this program. And Corpus Christi... I'll never forget, that's when the drinking really got the worst of me. It took me down so far that I don't know what happened to my body, brain, or whatever, 
but alcohol and whiskey got to the place to where I it wouldn't I couldn't get drunk, I couldn't sober up, I couldn't sleep. There was weeks and weeks that I never slept. I, it wouldn't put me down. And then one day, uh, my husband came home and found me. I was behind the bedroom door, and I wouldn't I couldn't come out. I was just balled up in a corner in the bed. And so he got me to a doctor, and the doctor said that she's she's losing it. And um, they never did notice it was alcohol, never did connect it. Now, this is in the 70s, and they didn't have the treatment centers, and they didn't know about alcoholic women back then. So he, uh, he said, she's not all right. She needs to go in the hospital. And uh, he said, let me go, put her in the car, and I'll come out there, and I'll give her a shot at the car, because if I give her this shot, she won't make it to the car. He gave me that shot at the car. I was still going 2 o'clock the next morning, all morning, never went down with that shot. So they, that's when they put me in the mental institution. My alcohol and my disease carried me all the way down into the mental institution because it, I bottomed out so hard where nothing would work anymore. Nothing worked. No whiskey, no alcohol, no beer, nothing would work. And I finally went off into the head. I went nuts. In the mental institution, where they say grave emotional mental disorders, I was one of those. And uh, that's when they put me in there and... Um, they, uh, first the doctor looked at me and I'd already had liver damage and he asked me how much I drank. I said a couple every now and then. And, uh, you know, they didn't pay any attention to it. So they uh, put, put you on the Thorazine treatment then. So the next five years, and this is my story, that they told me to stay on the Thorazine, that I wouldn't go off the deep end anymore, but I couldn't drink. You don't take whiskey with Thorazine. And I would do anything to get out of that mental institution. So I agreed I would never, ever drink again. And I'd take my Thorazine and I'd be a good little girl. Well, I got out and it didn't work. I still had to have my whiskey. So the next five years, I wound up drinking whiskey and beer and Thorazine. Mm-hmm. I, I did it. But I was so afraid if I didn't take the Thorazine that I would go off on that end again and I wouldn't, I'd wind up in the mental institution. Because I remember my husband coming and visiting me and he said, I knew, he looked at me and I remember looking up at him. I said, you know, there's no hope for me. There is no hope. I knew it. I'll never forget that feeling deep in my soul. I knew there was no hope. And so I don't know what happened between the Thorazine and the whiskey, but it got me through for the next five years. And again, I wound up using up Corpus Christi because I had to wreck then. I had to walk the streets. I mean, the line of the cops make you walk the streets then. And I had I had just left a bar, and I was headed to another one. I was pretty drunk. But uh, the reason how I got out of this, and this is what I say, you know, I was in my 20s then. I wasn't too bad looking. So I had on a long dress, you know, so I had to walk that line. So I just pulled my dress way up for the cops so I could walk. So, so they, he said, you're okay. So I, I, got, I got by. Well, I did have to go before a judge. But then when I was, he said, oh, you're just a little housewife, so you just had a little fender bender. And I said, yeah, that's what I did. So I got off of that. I was getting off easy on all those things. But that did get me out, I think, pulling my dress up pretty high. <laughs> you know, hey, whatever works, works. It gets us out of trouble. So anyway, um, I, like I said, we moved out of Corpus Christi and uh, moved on over to, uh, this time we had to go to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Because I felt like I had done up Texas already, so we moved on over there because his company would move us over there. And uh, But that was where the beginning of my bottom started in Oklahoma. I could not function much anymore, even trying to take care of the kids and trying to manage the home and um, just manage my drinking career. 
You know, if you know what it is, you know what it is. You've got to manage it. You've got to have it. You've got to be there. The mind is always come thinking about it. And I can remember thinking, well, if I don't drink before 12, I won't be an alcoholic. And I remember arguing with a lady in the psychiatric ward, if I don't drink beer, you cannot be an alcoholic. I mean, I would have went to jail and court with her, swearing up and down. As long as I stay with beer, I cannot be an alcoholic. But I didn't know what an alcoholic was. I thought the alcoholic was when I, the guy by that grocery store, we used to go get our stuff, he was drinking uh, aqua velva and on the side of the thing. And to me, that was an alcoholic. Now, my dad, I didn't know was alcoholic. I just assumed he was a crazy drunk that liked to kill and shoot people all the time, shoot up. So I didn't connect the alcohol. I didn't know what alcoholism was. I didn't know. I knew what drunk was. Because everybody had called me a drunk all through my drinking career, and I hated that word. When someone called me a drunk, I just wanted to... It did something to my soul. I don't know how to explain it, but it did something to me. I think you could call me any old bad name in the earth, but not a drunk. Because it did something in me. That it just did something to my soul. And uh, so when I got into Oklahoma, Tulsa, and... Um, that I was there about a year, and uh, my husband had a company there that I could go. He let me go to work there, and uh, all this time I've been planning. I could get. I needed my freedom. I need to run again because I'm a runner. I'm not going to sit still. And he let me get a job, and I got my own money. And so then I thought I wanted my freedom. So I decided that uh, I wanted to have that marriage. I think I can run my own life now. And so my alcoholism broke up that home, and uh, it separated. I divorced him, and I did get to keep the kids. Uh, but, you know, I lasted from one year to the day. It was August of 77, and my sobriety date's August of 78. One year before I made that phone call. And the reason why I look back on that when I sobered up was that he took care of me. He... Took care of, brought my coffee to me. He would tuck me in, let me lay on the couch and sleep it off, take care of the kids. I didn't have to really worry too much. So that one year out there on my own, trying to manage my drinking career, the kids in school, and trying to maybe hold this little job so I can keep some money, it didn't work. I bottomed out in one year. And you know what? I know he's a great man. I don't hold anything against him. He really was. But had, he was loving me to death, and I can see that now. And had he not, had I not left him, I don't know where I'd be today. But one year to the day, I walked in the Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, but that was in August of uh, August the 17th or 18th, somewhere in there. Uh, the reason why I called Alcoholics Anonymous was that I still didn't know I was an alcoholic. I just knew I was a drunk. And uh, every again, people were coming down on me. If you just don't drink, you know, why do you drink? Why don't you do something about your drinking? It's just like constantly on me. And I said, okay, I'll do something about my drinking. I just thought maybe I just wouldn't drink too much, you know, if I'd be okay. So, again, you know, I didn't know how to read. and I had dyslexia, so I didn't have a, I had a problem in that area. So I snuck back in the back of the phone, back where the phones were, and I called the operator and asked for the Alcoholics Anonymous. And that to, uh, today is where that came from, I can't tell you. I don't even know how to. I didn't know how to spell alcohol. I didn't have to spell alcoholics. Anything. I didn't know how to do it. So, but where the thought come to call that number, I'll never know. And I don't even want to try to think about it. I just know it was a power greater than myself guiding me. So I made the phone call, and the first thing out of my mouth was when I, whoever was on that other end was I was so afraid that you were going to come get my kids because I knew by then what kind of mother I was. I knew what I was inside, even though I was trying to do the best I could to keep them safe and doing my part. 
But they told me that they did not, they gave me, they would, did not want my kids. They wouldn't come get my kids. But they would send somebody out to 12-step me. And uh, that was on a Thursday night. And uh, her name was Irene. And sure enough, she came out. You know, and she had these little pamphlets over there. And I put the kids to bed early. It was even daylight. But you go into bed because I was afraid they'd hear things. And I put, I put the booze away. I sprayed the house with everything I could find so it wouldn't smell. And she came over and sat down. And she told me her story. And she would not shut up. I wanted her to go so bad. But she wouldn't shut up. She kept talking and kept talking. And then finally she put a phone number on one of those pamphlets. And she said, now if you want to call me, you know, call me. I'll come take you to a meeting. I, that time, that night, I shoved it in my nightstand drawer, and that was it. I had no intentions of getting that phone. Because you know what? I was ashamed to go there. I, was, I knew I was an alcoholic. I knew I was a drunk. I didn't know I was an alcoholic I came into this program. So um, I went. Uh, that was on a Thursday. Well, Sunday, August the 20th, the headlines in the paper, Betty Ford, the president's wife, announced that she had drug and alcohol problems. And you know what? She got me into the program. Betty Ford didn't even know it, but she helped me make that phone call. Because to me, I grew up in a generation where the presidents and the wives and the doctors, they were looked up to. We respected them. And I thought if the president's wife could even admit that on the newspaper, then why can't I call? So I pulled the number out. And that was on a Sunday night on August the 20th. And I haven't had a drink. And he had no Thorazine or nothing in 34 years. So that is my story of getting into this room. And there's a lot of little stuff I left out. But, you know, that I drink a logs. I don't like them. That, you know, I don't like mine that much because I look back on it sometimes. I identify with this program. I am a real alcoholic. When I took the first drink, I couldn't stop. And I didn't know it until I walked into this room that y'all told me it was the first drink that got me drunk. I didn't get it. I thought it was this 18-6 pack of beer or the fifth of whiskey or the Everclear, you know, just drinking it down. I was real poor drunk. I drank the Everclear. <laughs> but uh, but I drink anything, you know. But anyway, I thought that was the, the fifth of whiskey that got me drunk. But it told me that I have a disease that when I take the first drink, I can't stop. And I didn't, I didn't connect the dots until one day a guy in the meeting was sharing that, and it finally sunk in. But when I walked into these rooms, I knew then when I walked in and called when that Betty Ford thing was in the paper that I, that was my moment of clarity of my bottoming out. I wanted to stay sober more than anything in this earth. But I didn't know I wanted to stay sober. I knew there was something in me that wanted something so bad. And when I walked in here, y'all said, come on in, and y'all welcomed me. And... Uh, I thought, you know, maybe we were just going to learn, like she said, I think, learn how to drink or something. I didn't know that you don't drink, drink, you know. But I didn't take another drink when I walked in. And she picked me up that night for, to this day. And why, I don't know. But I had a desire of wanting to not be so torn up inside my soul anymore. Because I had a soul sickness. I don't know if you understand that more than... I had alcoholism and a soul sickness. My soul was gone, you know. I didn't wind up under the bridge, but I was in my soul. I did wind up in a lot of alleys that I didn't like. You know, I was an alcoholic woman out there, and I don't like some of the stuff I did out there. But I, my soul was bottomed out. I had nothing left in me. I was dead. And uh, when I walked in here, and uh, y'all, of course, y'all wanted to hug me and give me these phone numbers, and I didn't like that. I didn't know y'all touching me. Because I didn't like people coming near me. You know, I had these walls up, don't come near me. And, uh, but you know what? Y'all told me to keep coming back, coming back, and you, you, you love me until I can love myself. And uh, 
They've told me certain things to do. Yeah, this is what we did. This is the way they taught me in early sobriety of what to do, and this is in 1978, and I think they do the basics today, is that if you want what we got, you can have it. And they said, you know, don't drink today. You know, find a God you understand. If not, use this group. And I didn't want this God business because I was raised in the assembly of God, and I was raised with all this holy roly God thing. I never got the God thing. My mother got it, but I didn't get it. But I wanted that peace that everybody had in these rooms. They had something. And they said, if you do certain steps, you don't drink, you know, it's take the group as your me as my God. And I did. I took the group. I, I could trust the group because y'all were doing something right. And then just thank God at night, thank the group, whatever you wanted to do, and then go do the same thing over again next day, keep doing it over and over, and just one day at a time. And I believe that. For some reason, I don't know why I let down all that stubbornness, hard-headedness in me to actually listen to someone to tell me what to do and follow directions. Because you, I was not a direction person. You're not going to tell me what to do. I was hard-headed and stubborn. But I uh, finally, the first time in my life, I was willing to become willing to listen, to stay sober today. And then I think about the third meeting, and this is my story. Uh, it was on drugs and uh, prescription drugs and something like that. And so, you know, I come in Thursday, and this was on a Saturday, and I thought, you know, what do you mean? You know, they said, if you want what we got, we don't do this. And I said, what do you mean? He said, I said, well, I got my Thorazine. You know, as prescription, psychiatrists, they said, if you want what we got, we don't do it. And I said, oh, God, what am I going to do, you know? Because that was my life. That was my crutch, you know. I might go off the deep end and back of the nut house. But, you know, that night I left there. They said, well, come sit with you if you want us to. And I wouldn't. I can do this on my own, you know. I take care of it. And sure enough, I did. I did it that night. I said, nope, I'm not going to do it. I want to do what y'all told me to do, and I wanted what y'all had. So I put the Thorazine away. And uh, and then later on in my wallet, I found I had a prescriptions for those things, you know, the 75 or something milligrams or whatever, but I hadn't even gotten yet, but I didn't want to take them anymore. And that was the hardest thing for me to do because I had no more security, no more blankets to cover me up, nothing to help me not be afraid, you know, and then go back in that mental institution because that's a scary place to go. Um, so I did what you told me to do, and I, I did exactly what you told me. I got a sponsor. And I actually followed directions with a big book, you know. And I tell you, I couldn't read, but I could sit in the meetings and I could grasp what y'all said. And having dyslexia uh, most of your life, you learn how to hear and you learn your eyes. You pick up fast with your eyes. I can walk into a room and, and scout it out. I know immediately what's going on. And I can hear fast because I can't read. But I can read now. That's, I'll tell you about that story. But... Um, so I would sit in the room, and I would just listen and listen and listen. And I was having a hard time with this God business. You know, step three, this God business. I didn't want that. What am I going to do? Because I kept looking. Any minute, I was going to get it because I knew I couldn't be good enough for somebody to was going to zap me any minute because I was trying to be so good. You know, so, so I'd stay sober today. So I just white knuckle, white knuckle. I'd stay so good. And one day, I was in a meeting, and Doyle, he's 10 years sober, and I've got this God business. I must have said something. Because he said, culminate us in the chapter, it's in the big book of chapters of the agnostics, it's the, that we're all born in, with God in us. There's something with us knowing that there's a God in us. And he, he says, it's in you. And it never even dawned on me. I just assumed the way I grew up is going to get me any minute. And it was in me. And that was such a relief that night that I, I got over, I realized that, you know, that, 
we're not perfect, you know, we're not saints. We're willing to grow along spiritual lines. I'll never forget that feeling of being relaxed for the first time in my life that I had another hope. I didn't have to white-knuckle it anymore. I had, a, I had an experience of a God inside of me. But it was later on, this, this is my first year of sobriety, it's going down. And um, I don't know when it happened, but uh, y'all told me to keep doing what y'all told me to do, and I kept doing it. And then when I learned about the God inside of me, one day I was sitting and there was a presence of a God, or a hand, presence of something, there was a hand that came towards my body and pulled, got in there and just pulled something out like that. And I went like this to bring it back. And what it was, there was a presence of a God, power than, more power than me, that was pulling out that alcoholism inside of me and everything in me. And uh, I felt like a part of me was gone, but I was afraid for it to be gone. I wanted to bring it back because that was who I was. And now that's when I could start growing up more. And uh, what I had in my heart and my desires was that what the big book says, you know, page 84 and 85, that I can have a new freedom from alcoholism. The mind of the alcoholic will be gone. And uh, I can remember of May of 1979 experiencing that promise. It did happen for me. By doing the actions and doing with my sponsor, doing the steps, one right after another, and making those amends and going back down to Mac Island, Texas, and going over there and cleaning up that thing with the Baptist church with the preacher and his wife and, and with Mary Lou and all those people that I had harmed all in Texas, cleaning up all that wreckage. And the feeling, I got letters back from these people. I kept them. That the preacher, he said he was so thankful that I had sobered up and found God, you know, that I had, re- had finally received it. And uh, so I got good report back from my events. Uh, but, you know, I kept learning and listening to you on the big book. And uh, I wanted what y'all had. And if I did certain things, the promises would come about. And I believed it. You know, I, uh, I remember the promises in the big book. You would fear people would leave. I can remember my sponsor taking me to a, a, a convention. And I would hang on to her like a little kid, two-year-old in the, in the grocery store like a mother. I was so afraid that I'd leave her. I was so afraid of the people. And that week, you know, when they said the fear of people could leave you, it started leaving. You know, the fears were going away. And I don't know how many fears I had. It's just a list of them. But, you know, you could write down a whole book of fears. And, you know, to this day, I don't know what they were, but they were real at the time. But I know that they told me, and she would tell me calmly, don't run from it. Because I was a runner. She said, stay still, face it. Because if you don't, it's going to be another name, another color, another street or whatever. It's going to be facing you again. And that was my first time of waking up of not like packing a suitcase and going. You know, I'm just sit still and walk through something. And that was my beginning of my journey in this program in 1978 of learning how to be a lady. I didn't know how to be. I had to come in here and learn how to put on clothes. I had to go learn how to buy certain garments and put on, because uh, I'm the hippie generation, the burn the bra generation, so I had to go and buy clothes. And I started, you know, buttoning up my blouses more, and I, I went and bought this one dress. I'll never forget it. Put it on. I had to take it off. By then, I'd gotten this conscious, God-conscious thing in me. I put that dress on for the wrong reasons. And so I took it off, put it on the hanger. I didn't throw it away. But, you know, as I grew up, I started growing spiritually and started growing into a, a woman and, a, and a, a godly kind of woman or lady. I always wanted to be a lady. And uh, one day I took that dress down and I could wear it. 
I wore it like a lady. Because it had slits up the sides, but not way up, you know. <laughs> but just enough to wear, you know, like the cop thing, you know. So, but one day, I'll never forget, I could take that dress down, I put it on, I wore it like a lady. I knew then I was growing. I was growing up because I did not know how to conduct myself in public. And um, I, just, I just didn't know how. I didn't know how to do anything sober. And so you gradually taught me how to be sober. And, you know, one of my heart's desires was to, to have a one-man relationship. I wanted that one man. And, um, but I had to get cleaned up first because I was not very good coming in these rooms. And so God got to working on me in a lot of areas of my life. And he started cleaning me up and showing me how to be a lady, how to dress, how to do certain things. And uh, I was about a year sober, and I uh, was, was a year sober, and this guy came up and asked me out for dinner, and by then I didn't want anybody. They said, you keep growing enough, you don't need it, you just need God only. I didn't need nobody, so I turned him down. I didn't want it. But I thought he was married, so by then I don't mess around. I, no, I don't do it. Yeah, I don't want you. So cause I didn't want to mess up anything with my sobriety, because was, I was comfortable with my walk with God, and the kids were growing up, and they were getting to where they didn't hate me, and they loved me, and it, it just things were really good then. So uh, so he tried again to come back at me another day and ask me out. And now finally I said, hey, you're married, and I don't do that. I'm not going out with a married man. He said, no, I'm not married. I just assumed he was married to that lady. He wasn't. He says, okay, let's go. So we went out on a, on a date, and uh, we dated for about six months, and we got married in this program. And uh, he was uh, two years sober, and I was one year sober, a, little, a year and a half sober when I got married. And uh, then is when the growing up really had to get going because I, you know, I, did, I didn't know how to be married sober. You know, I knew how to be married drunk, and now i got to do this everything sober. I mean, i got to even learn how to cook, and I didn't cook. I didn't do nothing, you know. So I had to learn a lot of little lessons on how to be a wife, and he had three kids and an ex, and I've never dealt with exes and, and stepkids. I didn't know how to be a stepmom. So this was part of my learning how to grow up, just a how to be a stepmom, and I didn't know how. I didn't know how to do the ex-wife, and she was a... She caused us a lot of trouble, and but she was my teacher of helping me grow up too. Of how the love and tolerance, and also that in the where's that uh, these people are spiritually sick. You know, it's in the bottom of page sixty-six, I think, down there sixty-seven. That uh, that they some people are spiritually sick. You know, how can I be a better help and service to help them or something like that? I can't quote it, but she was my first teacher teaching me how what principle how that principle worked that I recognized that she, she was really trying to do damage, and you know she didn't want me to be married to him, and she didn't want him either, and I could sense it. But God showed me that principle, and I'd learned enough in this program. I had principles now, and I had little things out of the big book I could pull out and, and apply it to that lady right then. And so therefore, I didn't have to hate her. I didn't have to go into battle with her, that I could understand that she was like me at one time. I was very spiritually sick, and I could do some damages in homes, too. I did them. So I understood what was going on there, and that helped me with the principles of the program. And uh, But, you know, when we, we get into this and we start learning how to grow up, and um, like I said, 34 years of growing up, you can't do it in an hour, but uh, but I can tell you the early owns of growing up because it's really important if anyone is new or first few two to three to five years in the program, it's really, really hard. Not hard, but it's a lot of peeling off the old self has got to go away. I had to get rid of old, sick stuff in me, my old ideas, my old thinking, uh, and let God come in and bring in some new stuff into me and learn not to be so negative and not to be so 
you know, like we were studying yesterday, I think the other day, the contempt prior to investigating, you know, just really be open-minded. I didn't know how to be open-minded. And, uh, but once I had that experience with God, that presence that he came into me that day, I'll never forget that. But then this one, I started growing up really spiritually. Before then, it was just like I was just okay, you know, going down the road and I was growing. But then I knew there was a bigger power somewhere in there. And, you know, I started learning a little bit more about the big book and listening. You know, there's a lot of things in there, the grave emotional and mental disorders, you know, that some of us can't get well if we get honest. Mm -hmm. And I started looking at that and hearing that, and I said, you know, I did have a lot of mental disorders, and I said, I can get well. But, you know, gradually it's like peeling that onion. You know, they said the onion is real thin on the outside, but the more you peel it, it gets thicker. It gets thicker. You, the, the, if you ever peel an onion, it's real thin. Well, that's how my skin had, my sick had to be pulled off of me real thin. And then it got, my spirit started getting thicker to where I could start standing stronger. I wasn't that weak little child anymore and um, started growing more. So, But anyway... Um, that was in the 80s we got married, and then um, again, when I got married to him, he was a mover, too. He had a moving business, so we moved to Dallas, and that was scary. But anyway, when we got, um, I got married, and I'd, I'd never been away from my home group. This was my, I was the baby, you know, I was in that little home group. And he married me, and we had to move to Dallas, Texas, and from Tulsa. I'd never been away from my home group, my sponsor, anything. Then that's when, again, the walls had to come down again. I had to start growing and growing and growing because I didn't have my little cushion with people around me, surrounding me and loving me, you know, and uh, my sponsor wasn't there. She was in Tulsa. So that was my beginning again of learning to grow up. And, um, and I, you know, I'd like to take it, and I've only got about 10 more minutes, but the, the, about 10 years in increments, you know, from 1980 to 87, I can go, I can remember dates now in my sobriety. And in 1987, you know, it says in the big book, too, that uh, um, when the spiritual maladies overcome, we can straighten up mentally and physically. You know, and I'm a firm believer of that today because when I grew more spiritually, my mental and my physical got better. And in 1987, the presence of another, the same God that y'all introduced me to, healed my brain up here to where I don't know what it is he healed, but I can read today. It started in 1987. Nothing is backwards anymore. I know left from right. I know how to write numbers down. I can read a novel, and I have to... I'm a still, I'm a slow reader still today. I think, I, and that's okay, but I can read. I don't have to, you know figure out the words in each sentence and try to get to catch up with you. And I was like, that's why I couldn't keep up. I couldn't catch up. You know, you'd be on the first, second page, and I'm still at the first paragraph. That's where it used to be for me. And numbers were always backwards. I could not get anything straight. And left and right, never straight. But in 1987, that did happen to me. So, you know, I like to share a lot of this stuff because of the good things that come from for my obedience to you guys in the 12 steps and applying these principles in my life, you know, one day at a time, that I don't, I try not to limit God now in my life because I had limitations. I was like, oh, I didn't think about asking for the brain to be held up here, you know, my reading. I never thought to go there. But it don't know me if he can remove alcoholism. Why couldn't he do that too? That was after the fact. So today I've learned a little bit more about not limiting. But that was in 1987, so I've had the miracle then. And, um, and like I said, and then I like to move on into the 90s because the 90s was really a great 
good growing time for me. God gave me the blessed gift of being an artist, and I didn't even know I could draw or paint. So I, when I'm working with sponsees today, I don't let them limit themselves because, you know, first thing I have them do, I want you to write down your dreams and your visions. You know, write them down. Let's see what they are, whether they're real or fantasy, because I know the miracle happened to me that night when my husband took me to class, and I didn't even know I could draw. So I know there's stuff in me. If it's in me, it's got to be in you. So make sure that they write down their visions and their dreams. And whether phony or real, we'll let God figure out what's real. But, you know, then we had to go to work on what would block you from getting that. You know, that's where we have to go. And, but that's what I try to work with my ladies that, have, that will let me work with them. But in 1992, he took me to class that night, and um, I didn't even think to draw. I put the pencil in my hand, and, um, and then it all came out. You know, so that was a thing I didn't even know I had in me. So that was a gift that was given to me. And to this day, even my art, I know that it is a gift from God. Even when I'm drawing, I don't even know how to think to draw. I just pick up the pencil and I just draw. Or I can paint. I can't think it through. I can't read a book. I can't study anything. I don't know color. I don't understand color. I don't know how to mix. I just do. And it comes out. And uh, I won some awards after that, too. So, so you don't know where God's going to take you. That's why, you know, I don't want the girls and the ladies that I like to work with, don't want to limit, don't limit God on anything. You know, let's keep moving, you know, because I've experienced this, so I know there's something good coming for us. So that was in the 90s, and then in 1999, my husband died. He was 21 years sober in this program, and um, he got mesothelioma. Uh, he worked in the asbestos when he was 17 years old, and it shows up 40 years later. And uh, he was diagnosed on uh, November the 11th, and he died February the 12th. He just went, just like that overnight, he's gone. And uh, we had no warning, no nothing. It's, it's out. And uh, we had 20 years of marriage in AA. And out of that 20 years, we both grew up. We grew up together. We both learned how to be married. We learned how to do, how to have a relationship and not be leaning and sucking on each other's, you know, taking out their life and your life. And, uh, that's the way I try to take today, you know. I'm supposed to just share the space with him and not have any unhealthy needs for another human being. And that's where I'm at today with my life. I don't have any unhealthy needs for anybody on this earth, but I love to share the space with you and share anything I have around you and with you, but I don't. If I catch myself leaning and trying, you know, for someone, you know, like, oh, my God, you know, help me take care of me, I can't do that because I know even though married to Terry for 20 years that uh, God was showing him how to, to work and make the finances or whatever. And I knew it was coming through God to him, and I didn't lean on him. So when he passed on, I want to say it wasn't, I just remembered, I didn't think to get drunk. You know, you go into a, a I don't know, a state of mind that you're in shock. But I did go into shock for the first two or three years. I, you know, I just remember floating through. You guys carried me through. You carried me through. And uh, I got through the first three years. And then I seemed like I started coming back alive again. And moved out here and, uh, in, in 2001. And uh, this was his state. I already knew this state. You know, he'd worked in Arizona. So I did all the tours already. So, but I felt at home here. And uh, so my life, you know, these past ten years here in, in the Arizona, uh, God's really given me a lot of good friends, a lot of ladies to work with, and um, I open up my home. I have uh, tried to get in, inspire people if they want to paint, they come over and they do art. So I really am trying to give back 
anything that God's given me, I know it's a grace, his grace has given me that gift, to give back to anything that he's given me. And, and it's a joy, it's a pleasure, you know. And I finally get that happy, joyous, and free that I wanted way back in, uh, in the 60s and the 70s. I wanted it so bad. And walking into these rooms and staying sober one day at a time, applying those principles in my life, and actually letting you love me when I couldn't love myself. Uh, I've, reached, I've gotten to this place today one day at a time, and thank you all so much for having me here. Thanks, Carlina. That's it. Is that it? <laughs> That's hard.